0: We are currently in the Gospel of Matthew, the first book of the New Testament, 40th book of the Bible, and we are in the 23rd chapter, but we pick it back up about six verses prior. So if you don't have a Bible, first of all, raise your hand, let's get one to you, Uh, and please open them to, start it, if you will, with Matthew chapter 22, the end of Matthew 22, and again, if you just have it as an app, that's great too. I like to use my Bible app only because I'm blind as a bat and it allows the light to help me see. We pick it up in verse 41 so we can get this particular text and we'll go from there. Matthew 22:41. Of all the places where Jesus disses, where he really just crawls into your grill and has something really heavy to say, there is no place in text where Jesus speaks more strongly than we're going to see here. And I'll read Matthew twenty-two forty-one, and we'll read through that through uh, Matthew 23, just to really give you a feel for this really warm and fuzzy family-friendly message. It says this as we pick it up in verse 41. While the Pharisees were gathered together, Jesus asked them, saying, What do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? And they said to well, him, The son of David. he said to them, well, then how then does David in the spirit call him Lord, saying, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool? If David then calls him Lord, well, then how then is he his son? And no one was able to answer him a word, nor from that day did anyone dare question him anymore. Jesus shut down those that were trying to shut him down. And then in chapter 23, Jesus now begins to go on the offensive. It says, then Jesus spoke to the multitudes and to his disciples, who apparently also were there, saying, The scribes and the Pharisees sit in Moses' seat. Therefore, whatever they tell you to observe, and will that observe and do, but do not do according to their works. For they say and do not do. For they bind heavy burdens hard to bear, and they lay them on men's shoulders, but they themselves will not move with them or them with one of their fingers. But all of their works they do to be seen by men. They make their phylacteries broad and enlarge the borders of their garments. Oh, they love the best places at feasts and the best seats in the synagogues. Greetings in the marketplaces to be called by men, Ravi, Ravi. But you do not be called Ravi, for one is your teacher, the Christ. And you are all brothers. Do not call anyone on earth your father. We'll explain that in a moment. For one is your father, he is he who is in heaven. And do not be called teachers, for one is your teacher, the Christ, but he who is greatest among you shall be your servant. And whoever exalts himself shall be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. But, and now he goes and he starts really pulling out the pins. But woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you shut up the kingdom of heaven against men. For you neither go in yourselves, nor do you allow those who are entering to go in. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you devour widows' houses and for a pretense make long prayers. Therefore you will receive the greater condemnation. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you travel land and sea to win one proselyte, and when he is one, you make him twice as much a son of hell as yourselves. Woe to you, blind guides, who say whoever swears by the temple, it is nothing, but whoever swears by the gold of the temple, he is obliged to perform it. Fools and blind. By the way, for what it's worth, the word fool, uh, is you're aware of perhaps in the Greek, is the word moras. We get the word moron from it. So imagine Jesus going, you have a bunch of morons, you have blind morons. Which is greater? The gold in the temple that, or the temple, I'm sorry, the gold or the temple that sanctifies the gold. Verse 18. And whoever swears by the altar, it's nothing. But whoever swears by the gift that is on it, he's obliged to perform it. Fools and blind. Which is greater, the gift on the altar or the altar that sanctifies the gift. Therefore he who swears by the altar swears by it and all the things on it. He who swears by the temple swears by it and by him who dwells in it. And he who swears by heaven swears by the throne of God and him who sits on it. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you pay a tithe of mint and anise and cumin and have neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice and mercy and faith. These you ought to have done Without leaving the others undone, blind guides who strain out a gnat and swallow a camel. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you cleanse the outside of the cup and dish, but inside they're full of extortion and self indulgence, blind Pharisee. First cleanse the outside of the cup and dish, then, I'm sorry, cleanse the inside of the cup and dish, and outside of them may be clean also. What to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you are like whitewashed tombs, which indeed appear beautiful outwardly, but inside they are full of dead man's bones and uncleanness. Even so, you will outwardly appear righteous to men, but inside you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, because you build the tombs of the prophets and adorn the monuments of the righteous and say, Well, if we had lived in the days of our fathers, we would not have been partakers with them in the blood of the prophets. Therefore you are witnesses against yourselves that your sons of those who murdered the prophets will fill up then the measure of your father's guilt. Serpents, brood of vipers, how can you escape the condemnation of hell? Therefore indeed I send you prophets, wise men and scribes. Some of them you will kill and crucify and some of them you will scourge in your synagogues and persecute from city to city that on you may come all the righteous blood shed on the earth, from the blood of righteous Abel or Chabel, to the blood of Zechariah, the son of Berechiah, whom you murdered between the temple and the altar. Assuredly, I say to you, all these things will come upon this generation. O oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the one who kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to her. How often I have wanted to gather her children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings. But you were not. Willing. See? Your house is left to you desolate, for I say to you that you shall see me no more till you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Pray with me, would you please? God, we need you. So much more than just want you, we need you. We need you for our every breath. We need you, God, to to speak to us and give us ears to hear, to plant your word in our lives in such a way that is so clear and practical that our whole lives be changed, that we forever be changed. So God, please have your way now. Speak profoundly. Minister profoundly. Speak bespoke to each of us, fluent us, so we could hear you and understand you and know you. Love you like we should. Oh God, please make your love evident. Even in this text, all the more, Lord, make your love and your call on our lives evident. Oh Lord, may we, each one of us, get it today. May we, Lord, be captivated in your word that you would redeem every second and in this time now. Profoundly, minister, may we have so much fun in your word even as we dig into this heavy text. You know how to speak to us. Do so, we pray. In Jesus' name. Amen. I would say today, as I would any, please don't just believe me. Never just assume it's true because I say so. Search the scriptures. Let the Bible always be the final say. It is always about the word having the final say. It is the Tuesday of Jesus' Passion Week. He has arrived on Sunday while people were saying, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. The problem is, the king that they were seeking was not the king Jesus wanted to be. They wanted him king over their temporary problems. They wanted him deliverer over Rome, over their discomforts, but not over the eternity Jesus represented and we can do that too you know we can call out to God and say God fix me I think I got my girlfriend pregnant I think that I might have a disease I think that the police might want me or just I can't pay a bill or whatever the case is but something that is obviously temporary now the problem with bills is they'll keep arising we get that but when we have these foxhole confessions the problem is it seems like the only time we cry out to God is in the middle of a trial and to be honest then we really don't cry out to him again until the next trial and if God really loved us the way that we know He does, it would almost seem cruel cool for God to ever take us out of a trial. If really, the only time we really seek to be with Him is then. Now, certainly, God doesn't want us miserable. What He wants is us with Him. And on this particular day, on the Monday, by the way, the day that you clean the, from the house the chametz, you clean the the uh, the the leaven out of the house, the the yeast. On that same day, Jesus enters in and cleans out of the temple courtyard area the tax or I keep saying that the money changers and those that are selling doves, and he and he starts driving everyone out. And then it tells us, by the way, then he begins to heal the blind and the lame. So if you think that Jesus, this is him losing his temper, turning into the Hulk and freaking out, I think you're really missing the point. This was not Jesus losing his temper. It was a calculated, very clear event because Jesus had come in on that Sunday night. But it was late, and on Monday he cleansed the temple, as anyone did in their house on that day. They cleaned out, drove out, is the term, the chametz. On the Tuesday was the day of investigation, where you inspected your sacrifice, because you knew just in a couple days you would be offering that lamb to be sacrificed, and it had to be without blemish. And on that Tuesday, Jesus is inspected. By the chief priests first, then the disciples of the, of the Pharisees and the Herodians, and then the Sadducees, and then finally the Pharisees. And in each case, of course, Jesus shuts them down. He shows that he clearly is without blemish. And then since it's stumped Jesus' day, Jesus throws one out at them. That's the whole reason we went to Matthew 22:41 to the end of the chapter. I mean, of all the zingers Jesus could throw, and he could certainly throw out all kinds of things, he chose this one, and I find it interesting that the one that he asks really has to do with lordship. Did you notice that? He says, let me ask you a question. Right, two, a thousand years before Jesus would become as a baby, a thousand years prior, David is writing Psalms. And during that time, he writes Psalm 110. The first verse says, The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand till I make your enemies a footstool for your feet or just your footstool. And they ask then, Jesus asks, Well, well who is this Messiah? Whose son must he be? And everyone knew that he would be the Messiah ben David, the Messiah, the son of David. They knew that because all the way back in 2 Samuel 7, when God promised the Messiah would come, he promised he would come as a son from David's lineage. So they knew that. So what's the big deal? Well, it's a huge deal. It's a huge deal because during this particular time, and please hear me in this, during this particular time, nobody bowed to their own kids. As a matter of fact, you wouldn't even bow to a younger man. I find it really interesting because of all the people to understand that, David would. Because David was the replacement for an older Saul. Who, by the way, God had said, I found a man better than you. A neighbor. One who was after my own heart. And he turns out to be a teen. A kid who pops in, if you will, taking down the giant Goliath. I just find that fascinating that if anyone understood what it was like to be the young kid on the block and to be hated for it, it would be David. David gets that. So when he says, the Lord said to my Lord, he understood that even though the child was to come from him, he also wrote that his kingdom and his throne would be from everlasting to everlasting. Though he would come on earth physically, he dwelt eternally prior. And therefore it wasn't a problem for David to bow to him and call him his Lord. In our text, by the way, what we start to see is Jesus starts to jump in and after these guys. These guys, their biggest issue, the religious leaders, their biggest issue was lordship. And by the way, it will be for every one of us. Now, I'm not talking about lordship of the church. I'm not talking about lordship of some kind of bishopry. I'm talking about the lordship of Jesus Christ, where he makes the law and we are willing to submit to it. And let's be honest, for some of us, that is the hardest thing ever. We really don't have a problem with him blessing us. Let's be honest. If Jesus was just like, hey, I just want to fill your house full of good things and I want to give you, you know, health and all these things that can kind of be purported sometimes throughout churches. If that was really God's number one thing was he was the butler for your comfort, well, then who in the world wouldn't want to recruit him? He's almighty. Who better to have as your butler than that guy? But he's not. He is God almighty and he's also the Lord of all. And we need to bow to him. We need to submit ourselves to him and let him be the one who calls the shots. And for a bunch of elderly men who are leading Israel at this particular time, which Jesus is going to nail down through that chapter 23, they have a real problem with a guy that they're going to say, you're not even 50. Well, Jesus is actually, to be honest, roughly 30, 32 years old, which, by the way, I think it's kind of weird that they say he's not even 50. I, you know, I don't know if I'd be insulted. Just the same. And I look at this, and the first thing I think is, why doesn't Jesus go after the Sadducees or the Herodians like this? I mean, look at the things he says in this text. Woe, seven, eight times. Hypocrites, by the way, and we'll get into that in a moment. Blind, guides, Pharisees, and fools. He uses five times. He calls them a son of hell. Tells them that they neither go into heaven themselves, nor do they allow anyone else. They're an obstacle for someone else to enter. He says that they'll receive a greater condemnation. How do you escape the condemnation of hell? Which one of you wants Jesus to say that to you? He calls them serpents, a brood of vipers, in other words, a family of snakes. Who wants to be called that? Why does Jesus go after these guys, but not as much after people like the Sadducees? Well, he's going to make that really clear in this chapter. It really breaks down into three very basic areas for which then he develops in each of them. But which one of us wants to in any way remotely look like this? But let me see what the biggest situation is. Is that what the Pharisees had done was make it harder to get to God. Not easier. And that becomes the problem. You see, please understand that the most important thing to God is not you being happy. And you were not created to praise Him, or to worship Him, or to serve Him, or even to glorify Him. You were created to be with Him. And the reason He created you is because He wants to be with you. If you Imagine, one person in all of eternity can actually build a mate, someone to hang out with. And that's God, and He built you, of all things, and me, of all things. And said, I created you because I want to be with you. That's the whole point. And if that is all of God's motivation, if that's everything that drives Him, and everything that happens in your life is good if it brings you to Him. It's just not good, as far as you're concerned, if it doesn't make you happy. So all of a sudden, I realized that for some people, cancer was the best thing that ever happened to them. Now, not cancer for cancer's sake, but if that's what drove someone to the arms of God, it was a great thing for that purpose. Because what God really wants is you. That's what He really wants. And when the scribes finally ask Him, a lawyer asks Him, What's the greatest commandment? He says, let's be really clear on this. Love me with all your heart and all your soul and all your mind. Please just love me. If you loved me, the rest of it's all going to work its way out. And then when you look at each other, love people, your neighbors, like you would yourself. Because if you can put these two things in, everything else works out in the wash. So Jesus here now starts to deal with these people, but please understand there are two basic issues in regards to what God really hates. And in both cases, let's face it, if the number one objective of God is to bring you to him, anything that stands in the way of that becomes his greatest foe. Does that make sense? So while we can build all kinds of ethereal and cool little things and light our incense and play our kaleidoscope games, in the end of it all, if the number one thing is you being close to God and somebody's interfering with that, well, then God God has a real problem with that. And that happens in one of two ways. That's the two points on that. Is that on one side of it, it works because the one thing that separates us is our sin. That becomes really clear in Isaiah 59-2 when it says, your iniquities have separated you between God. To put a wall, if you will, between you and God. They've separated you. So when someone doesn't want to play, the, play by God's rules, and where they're going to try to say that the sin isn't there, think about what they're really doing. They're basically pretending that the wall isn't there between you and someone else. Well, it's just not there. You just live like it's not there. But what's really clear and evident is that God is a real problem when we start poo-pooing sin and say, well, don't worry about it. You can embrace that and still be right with God because God knows, like we might say in a case like this, where it's something that kills you, God doesn't want you embracing something that kills you, especially when, as it kills you, it pulls you away from him. So there is that case. But then there's this case, the case of the Pharisee. And the case of the Pharisee and the scribe here are people who you actually have a hunger to come to God, but they've made the simple complicated. And they've put the one-step process into a 15-step process. So now all of a sudden, getting right with God, is like all of these crazy things, and now you don't even know if you've memorized them all, Verses, if you're willing to confess your sin. He's faithful and just to forgive your sin and cleanse you from all unrighteousness. That's what God tells me in Scripture. That if I'm willing to confess with my mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in my heart that God raised him from the dead, I'll be saved. It seems pretty simple to me. So imagine, if you will, that we went and we took ourselves. We, we were all, let's say, medics for the moment. And in our medical profession, we've decided, we decided we decided we were going to do something like Doctors Without Borders. You know, that's where we go and visit a third world country that is destitute of basic needs within medicine. And we recognize that in this particular place, that there are people who really, to be honest, are dying from things that could be dealt with with a simple injection of penicillin. No, as long as they're not you know, allergic to penicillin, that would be a problem. And we go there and we recognize it's a very simple thing, but they've never received any form of jab before, so I would imagine that would be very intimidating. How in the world do we help them? Well, We've heard cases of missionaries that what they did is they actually went and got sick. They actually went into the place, got sick, displayed the same symptoms and features that these people had, and then went and received the injection so that they could show them that it cured them, from which then the people would queue up quite quickly. But that takes a pretty selfless person, wouldn't you agree? I mean, a person who's willing to experience that kind of discomfort and dishealth just for that purpose. But what if we actually knew that all they needed was that? A simple administration of a, jab, of a jab. But when we get there, there are those that really, for whatever reason, decided it should be a more of a lengthy process. So we try to get them to memorize a handful of things. We try, to, you know, we try to teach them on proper hygiene and things, by the way, that aren't bad. But they just don't cure them. So they've got clean hands, but they're dying. Or we teach them, you know, in regards to certain things that we know culturally are dangerous or whatever. And so we start to play all these things. But we're putting these somehow in between them and the penicillin. Well, we would have to imagine that's a problem. On the other side, if they're able to administer the penicillin, well, then now they're actually in a healthier state to be able to help with things like hygiene and so forth. And there's the difference between the rescue and the rebuke. There's got to be this place where we put nothing in between them. And we don't want anything to get in between them so that we can get them well. But if we go out into the world and we're not willing to represent ourselves as medics to a dying world around us because we just want to blend in with the sick people but not really for the purpose of them being well, well, then we're in grave danger of being completely ineffective, which is much of what Christianity is viewed as in our country. In this particular text, what we're going to find is is that he kind of lays this out in three areas. Verses 1 through 12, by the way, in regards to their area of public performance, and in verses 13 through 22, it'll be in the area of worldly wealth. And then in verses 23 to 33, then, will be the area of false focus. And that's kind of how this chapter plays out. So look at it with me. Jesus starts, by the way, he's teaching his disciples. Now, so he's been approached now by all of the major religious groups. He's dealt with their problems patiently or their, with, with their, you know, if they will, sort of like their math equations. And then Jesus turns and he wants to teach his disciples And he starts by telling them this, that the scribes and the Pharisees, they sit on Moses' seat. Now, there is a ruling party that goes all the way back to Exodus, where 70 elders would sit and lead. I mean, in essence, they were your court. They were your your judicial system. Now, 70, by the way, in the Hebrew is from which we get the word Sanhedrin. And that's the idea of the Sanhedrin. It's the 70. So they were, in essence, your judges. And because they do that, he says, I want you to submit to them because they sit there. And that's you know interesting, by the way, the Sadducees would actually sit in Aaron's seat, if you will, they said, as priests. But the Pharisees, they sat as the judges. And because they make judgments on things, he goes, look, you really need to do what they say. Jesus doesn't say if you disagree with the government, you should actually disobey it. Unless they demand that you sin. Matter of fact, when Paul writes that to the Romans to obey all of the government around you. He was writing about a Roman Empire that, at the time, Nero was in charge, and you're not going to get more wonky than that government. As crazy as our governments have been, both here and on the other side of the pond, I have to be honest, they've never been that crazy yet. Oh, but God help us. And he looks and says, "Look it, these guys are sitting as judges, and you need to you need to adhere to their judgments, but do not use them as role models." Because in the simple sense, they're all talk and no action. And he goes into the first theory, and again, I remind you, this is verses 1 to 12. So look at it. He says, verse 4, they bind heavy burdens, hard to bear, lay them on men's shoulders, but then they won't do anything to help. And he tells us why, verse 5, because they do all of their works to be seen by men. They make their phylacteries broad and enlarge the borders of the garments and they love the best places at feasts, best seats in the synagogues, greetings in the marketplaces, and be called by men, Ravi and teacher and father. In our first area, what we find is that this issue is that Jesus calls them again, eight times in here, hypocrites. Hypocrite, upo means upon or over. Kritas is a mask. So in the simplest sense, they're a mask wearer. Now, 2,000 years ago, the Greeks who were well-known for their theater, I mean, you didn't hire 15 people for a 15-person play. I mean, that goes all the way back. To, we can find that with Shakespeare. You hire enough guys, as few guys as you need to, and then you put masks on them. So they come up with one mask. They're a particular character. They go off. They put on another mask. Obviously, they're a different character. And that way, of course, you know, it's like who wants to play in a band that's like 70 people? Nobody gets paid anything. So how would we relate that today? I mean, what would we say? And I mean, obviously what you're saying in the simple sense is they're an actor. But let's be honest. in acting is a profession today. So it isn't like you want to say, well, obviously you can't do that. What would that be? What would be another term we'd use? Perhaps the word poser or imposter. Somebody that's portraying a particular role, but they're clearly not that role at all. And that's what he calls them here more than anything he calls them posers. Now let me ask you to help me out here. Is there a term, a slang term, that's not a ter- I mean, a term we can actually use uh, for somebody that's like that, if, other than poser or imposter? What would be the other word on the streets here? Is there anything? What's that? Fugazi. Oh, so there you go. That would not make sense. Yeah, I mean, this is what Jesus is calling them. Now, what's interesting is he's obviously telling us that they're going to hell. Did you see that here? But remember how the chapter ends? The chapter ends by saying, I keep holding my arms and all I want to do is gather you and you won't have it. It isn't that God really wants to condemn them at all. What he's actually offering is he's offering them to come, but they're going to have to drop their masks to come. There's the point. So here's the first part, is that this whole religious system you set up is one of all about public performance. In Psalm 150, verse 3, it tells us, by the way, to praise the Lord with the sound of the trumpet, but also to praise him with the lute and the harp. Now, you're probably familiar with the fact that trumpets are extremely loud instruments that can frighten a person in an underground station. We've discovered that on a couple occasions. Now, a lute, the closest thing we have to a lute is a guitar, but it's a much smaller instrument. So, it's, in essence, it's sort of like a thicker, gut-strung mandolin. It's a quiet instrument, as are harps. Please understand what God is saying as we read Psalm 150. The point is, is that we're going to praise God with these very tender, intimate instruments like a harp or a lute. But we also praise God with the trumpet. And he goes, if we're going to really worship God wholeheartedly and properly, there has to be this place where it's a private thing as well. This place where we're actually, there's this intimate moment where it's just you and the Lord and you're enjoying him and he's enjoying you and you're pouring forth the surrender to him where nobody else is looking and it's just you and him. But then there's also this public aspect of it where you actually are able to go in a place like this, for instance, and the music's a little bit louder and we're going to sing a little bit louder and there's going to be people around you. And he goes, In such a circumstance, he says, both are required. We use the first, and we often use the term harp time. Often what you find is when your trumpet time is getting weak, it's because you really don't have proper harp time. But let's face it, if, you have, if you're married, you know how this is. Because you want to have both. You want to have those intimate, quiet moments where it's just you and your spouse, those places where it's sweet and it's just you two. But then there's also the fact that you want to make sure you can go public with it. Because let's face it, ladies, if a man ain't willing to go public with you somewhere else, I'd be a little concerned about why. And I was, I think it was 12, maybe 11, and this girl told me in the, in the lunchroom that she loved me. And I was like, I don't know, I was a punk of a kid, and I didn't remotely know the Lord. And I says, well, then stand up on this table and tell everyone. She goes, what? And I'm like, "Look, it, if you can't stand on this table and tell everyone, I'm going to doubt your sincerity. I was a weird kid. But I get the heart of that. Man, it's like, look at if you have gotta hide your, your your ring or you you know or whatever when you're married. I just I have a real problem with. It. I'm like I just don't get what's going on here. Where's the public aspect of it? And there are those that are like, you know, well what we really want to do is we just want to kind of sit at our house and just kind of listen to a message and we'll sing a couple of songs. But God wants us public too. And there are those, by the way, it's all trumpet, man. It's like when the music starts, there, just it's it's banging. They're high fiving and spinning and jumping and working up a sweat you know, to get in the praise on, But then what happens is they get home and the praise got left at the church. And it tells us that both really need to happen. God really wants praise time. That's a harp time, but also it's a trumpet time. And when Jesus is surmising these Pharisees, what he says is, you guys are all trumpets. It's like, I see what happens when you guys are home alone. When you guys are home alone, there's just none of this. There's no intimacy. There's no crying out to me. At a moment like that, you're plotting your next move, but it has nothing to do with me. So in the first area, let me ask you, what about you? Can you see? He goes, this gets in the way. Because the whole point of all three of these is this is what gets in the way of you being effective to bring people to me. He goes, here's our problem. He goes, you're so busy about being on show, so make sure that everything looks right, that it just isn't Right? And so what happens in the end of it all is that people make you make yourself the destination instead of the road map. And as long as people think you're awesome, they'll never get to the Lord because you're kind of too busy making sure that everyone knows who you are. He goes, man, this just doesn't work. And then he uses these terms, Ravi. By the way, Ravi means master. It's a person, I mean, the best, closest example I have is I used to train in martial arts, I used to teach it, and you get to this place where you have your own dojo and they call you master in one manner or another. Sensei. And what they're calling is the same thing. You've ascended to a place where they're going to emulate you is the idea. He goes, man, who do you really, really want to be the master? The best term we might be able to use more sort of blanket might be expert. Who's the real expert? Do you really want people to know you it. Or do they really, do you want people to know that God really is it? Because if it really is about people's approval and not about their atonement, you will be the destination. You will be the tourist place. But it's not just that, it's teacher. And the idea of in the end of it all is that you are the, in essence, you are the font for all information. You are the Google for everyone to turn to. But then there's this term, Father. And I get it, because the term teacher, by the way, it literally, in essence, means leader. I get it, like the person or our guide. But then I get to this father thing, and I realize he's speaking to people who are Jewish, who understand that their father, in essence, was the representative before God. Who are you? I'm from the tribe of Judah. I'm from the tribe of Issachar. I'm from the tribe of Zebulun. And what God really doesn't want is somebody else stepping in between you and him so that you think you have to go to him. Hear me on this. He doesn't want you to think you have to go to anyone else to get to him. And whether that's his mom or whether that's a dead saint who's, who wouldn't know who you are anyways because he died 300 years ago, why would would you try to contact that person? Imagine, if you will, I'm pursuing my wife. As you're probably familiar, on Friday, Suzanne and I have been married 27 years. You know, and, and it's like, can you imagine it be like, oh, I just really want you to be with me. You know, I just really, I'm, I'm down on my knee. Here's the ring. And that's a funny story. You can ask it later. But in the end of it all, it's like now that we're together and now that you're mine, if you really want to talk to me, talk to my mom. What's Wouldn't that just be weird? Or, well, you know, I've got this dead uncle. And if you just talk to him, again, I'm not trying to diss history. What I am trying to do is get to the heart of what Jesus is saying. I don't want anything between us. And I don't want you putting all of these obstacles because they're foolish. I've come to earth to be with people. Why in the world would you do this? And if all we really want to do is make some form of dumb show before other people, God's not clapping over it. He's not applauding that. He goes, you know what I really want is to use you, but to use you, I want first for you to experience how good it is to be close to me. Otherwise, you're repping you're rep- a place you don't, you don't live in. So that's the first thing. So I get the idea of why he says, okay, don't call someone a teacher like that. The one true guide is Jesus Christ. The one true mediator, it's him. God's your mediator. That's the way that works. The one master so when some guy <coughs> cloaks himself in round glasses and just kind of puts them at the bridge of his nose and speaks without opening his teeth, you know, and everything, like every word's polysyllabic, and he's sort of brilliant out of, he sort of spouts ornamented nothingness. you know, And there's like, well, that guy's clearly an expert. If it doesn't line up with God, he's an expert in nonsense. It's like, yes, I have a PhD in underwater BB stacking. Congratulations, what good is that going to help me with? The second section then, by the way, as he moves from that, is chapter, or verses 13 to 22, where he talks about the world's wealth. And again, I want to remind you, this could be tremendously encouraging if what we really want and we recognize is that God really wants to be with us and he doesn't want anything between us. And then he wants us to be used to draw other people to him and doesn't want us to be the thing in between Him either. So in the first area, please understand, what if we would just said, God, I just want to make you known. I just want to be so intimate with you that I cannot help but pour forth who you are to others. and That will become magnetic. In the second section, now what we find is that they, well, the values are completely wrong. Verse 13, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, you shut up the kingdom of heaven against men. And you don't go on yourself and you don't let anyone else in either. You devour widows' houses for a pretense, making long prayers. Oh, I do have to say this, because I don't, I don't want to miss this. In verse 5, forgive me, I have to go back for this. But it says that they do, all of the things that they do, they do to be seen by men. And then we read, they make their phylacteries broad. And unless you're kind of familiar with Jewish culture, chances are you may have, you may have no clue what that means. So let me show you a couple of pictures and help you understand that as we move on. So, and if you would, please. Back in Deuteronomy chapter 6, God spoke about what he really wanted. Again, remember, to love the Lord with all your heart, soul, and strength. That's what he wanted. And as that was the case, God says, I want it to be like the back of your hand. I want it to be like on your forehead. I want it to be so familiar that the one thing you know more than anything else is that I want your love. That's the one thing. What's interesting is the people didn't know that. Let's go to the other pictures first, if we could, And Thank you. Uh, so I'm going to flip to another. I'm sorry, I'm really putting you on the spot here. Take a look at this. This is one of the two phylacteries right here. This is the other one. Now, remember what God said. Let this be like the back of your hand. Let this be like written on your forehead. And the idea of it is God wanted it to be that familiar. So guess what they did? They not only took the word, but they put it in a box. And then they put that box on their head. The strangest thing is you can't read it when it's in the box. And they would take it and they would strap it onto the back of their hand. So what would happen is you could look, you could see the box, you could see the straps, but what you couldn't see was God saying, I want your love. So what they've done is they, and when he says you love to make your phylacteries broad, think about what that means is they want to take this thing and they're going to make it Bigger. Because obviously, if it's bigger, you must be more holy. So sooner or later, it's like duct taping a toaster to your head so it's bigger, and it's, oh, I write it in, you know. And it's like, we don't have that. So what would that look like for us? Well, before the advent of the Internet and where everybody carries sort of, if you will, a computer in their pocket, before that, it was who has the biggest Bibles, you know. And it was like you'd open them up, and some guy would go, show Boom! Like that. And they'd open it. Oh, it's my Bible. You know, excuse me. You know, I had to work out for a while just so I didn't pull my back out when I carried this thing. You know, and it's got all my notes and it's got, you know, things from all over the place. And look, it's the original language I can't read. and You know, that kind of thing. And we just got to this place where, well, here's the weird part about it. Is that what the people were doing was completely the opposite of, the, of God's heart, of course, which is, I just want you to know that I want you to love me. And just strap a leather strap on you and then make it bigger so it looks like you just took your belt off and put it on your arm? Is not going to show, is not going to, does that really remind you that I love you and that I want your love? And then you put this thing, you know, I think one of the guys looked at it for the first time and he went, I think that's like a GoPro, you know. And it's like you put this thing on his head and he goes, do you really want that to be the thing that reminds you? I mean, does that really remind you that what it is is that I, I want your love and I love you too? Because if that's really the case, because you're doing this because of other people, see how big the box is on your head, but you really aren't doing it about what it's really about. Isn't that sad? Because I just don't, I just don't want that. So look, at, here's the scariest thing. The reason these people were doing this is because there was such a standard of holiness that the people, in essence, if you think about it, were trying To fake holiness because they thought that would get them farther in the church. You know what the scariest thing is? I don't think there's any standard of holiness in the church anymore. I think for people to think they can advance in the church, they get a couple more piercings and a handful more tattoos. And maybe if they wear their clothes tight enough and such, maybe they'll actually become more popular or learn how to play guitar. Then maybe they could become more popular. How sad is that? I mean, the reason they were faking their prayers is because prayer was a big deal. The reason they were faking their knowledge of Scripture, if you will, is because it was a big deal. Today, I don't know how many churches that is even a big deal at all in. Well, nonetheless, I better get to our second section if we're going to close this up. The second area is that what they placed their value on was worldly wealth and not on the things of God. Look at verse 13 again. You shut up the kingdom of heaven and you don't go in. Verse 14 says that you devour widows' houses. And for a pretense, make a long prayer, and did you notice God takes that very seriously? He says, "You will receive a greater condemnation for this." God knows what happens when you take, when you, if you will, extort from the needy, and He takes that very seriously. They were obviously cunning crooks, is what they were. And He looks at them and He goes, "You know, when you see someone, you're sizing them up for what you can get from them." He goes, "That is so opposite of me." Now look at. You know this, whether the people have really genuinely experienced it or not. When you try to invite someone to church, you kind of feel like that may be the first place they're going to go. Isn't it true? Oh, they just want my money. Hey, look, did we pass a hat? Did we pass a gold-plated, you know, silver-lined velvet bag for you to put money in? I know that sounds pretty cruel. Forgive me. We have a box in the back you can give if you want. May the Lord lead you. But hey, it's a box and you don't do it in front of anyone else. It's between you and the Lord. You want scripture on it, Second Corinthians four is beautiful on it. It says you never have to you should never give by compulsion, in other words, no one should ever force you to give. Because God he says God loves a hilarious giver. It's the term he uses for cheerful. He goes, but you never give beyond what you can. He goes, You set aside that which by the way the Lord's made clear and you've set aside that which is clear on your heart and you, you give and that's that God's good with that. But when it comes to this these people were sizing you up and they were kind of checking your watch. They were checking the, the clothes you were wearing and saying, Oh well, that person's probably worth this. I think that's probably a thousand pound champion right over there. And they'll start playing these games. God really wants to bless a big giver. But what happens if you're still just trying to figure out how you're going to pay for lunch after church? Obviously, you're not going to be the biggest blessing in God's kingdom. How sad is that? And God hates that. Did you notice, by the way, this is where he says, you're not even making it into heaven and you're going to receive a greater condemnation. What in the world is that? A worse place in hell? How does that work? Do you get this? If you have a problem with that, sounds like you and Jesus could sit over coffee and agree on this one quite well. The question is, do we want to be it ourselves? Because, oh, look it. You see who swears by the temple, well, that's not really anything. But the gift in the temple, well, that's another story. The gold in the temple, well, that's clearly okay. By the way, Jesus told us not even to swear at all. But you know how people have to sweeten the deal sometimes because your word isn't worth much. So you say, yeah, I swear on the grave of my father, Enigo Montoya. Now somehow that's going to make it better. But if we're going to be honest in it, your it, your yes should be yes, your no should be no, you shouldn't have to sweeten the deal. But if you actually say, I have to sweeten the deal, but you're actually saying what's more valuable the temple and the altar or the gift and the gold? Well, that kind of tells you what's important to you, doesn't it? So you're kind of banking on things somehow that are going to be for worldly wealth that really isn't going to last. You're going to stand before God as a pauper but you were able to drive your Bentley to hell? How does that work? Now look at, this is not condemning a person for having wealth. This is condemning a person because What they're busy doing is they're busy trying to figure out how to get that person's wealth instead of how to invest into them. People are supposed to be our only earthly investment, if you think about it. Everything we do should end up at people, or it really isn't going to mean anything. We attach ourselves to heaven. we We feel God's heart, and as we align ourselves with God's heartbeat, he'll say, now, let's go and let's reach people. Because when you stand before God and you live eternally, it's not going to be about the things that you can't bring with you anyways. It's only going to be about the people. That's the places where I lay my treasures in heaven. And I'll be honest, I'll give up everything and, and more. My arms and legs and everything, my sight. If somehow that would bring my whole family to Jesus and that I knew that they were walking with them for the rest of their life, it would be worth it. Because I, you know, hey, look, if I lose my arms now, I'll get them back later. And I'll be a lot better off. And everything that I have right now, is I'm going to lose it sooner or later anyways. I just don't want to lose you. I just don't want to lose the people that I claim to care about. Man, I just want you to know Jesus. So there's our second area. The third, then in verses twenty-three to thirty-three, is the shell or the soul, and you realize again they're focusing on the outside. He says you've neglected the weightier matters of the law, but you played this whole game of tithing. And again, tithing was a law because the, everything was a theocratic government. You, you, you sponsored the temple because the temple in essence was the center for everything among Jewish living. And so you gave a tenth. And so what happened is when, the, when your plants produced seeds, you actually separated your seeds. You got one for God and nine for me. And you did that with your mint. You did that with your, with your cumin and your anise as he says. He goes, but he's like, you obviously don't have a problem with detail but for all the detail that you're playing out, you're missing all the important things. You know, I mean, that's the guy that says, well, you know, so I beat my wife, but I made my bed. Like, that would mean anything to us. You know, and we kind of like, well, oh, congratulations with that. You must have been exhausted after beating your wife to make your bed. That was really great. I mean, think about how dumb that is. But then God looks and he goes, you know, all the things, and here's the crazy part, all the things that you're really kind of playing out this tithing game with, just don't involve people. But to God, the most important thing to God is is people. So you're busy making sure that everything is kind of set aside and all your ducks are in a row as long as they don't involve people. But when you're around people, you're a big, fat jerk. And God looks at you and goes, this just doesn't work. You guys are posers. You guys are hypocrites. That's what you guys are. You're the cubic zirconia of the whole diamond world. That's the whole place in it. So he looks at it and he's like, look at." Because not that you shouldn't do that, he goes, but it, that's just not the important thing. And he says, you strain a gnat and swallow a camel. Now please understand that when they made their wine, they would step with their feet on it and it would come down into a wine vat and they would cover it in something similar to nylon, uh, so that the reason is they didn't want a bug to land in their nylon ni- their, their grape juice. Because if it landed in their grape juice, well then clearly we've got a problem. Because at that point, then what happens is, well then your you know your your grape juice isn't kosher. And he goes, you're straining a net, and they would do that all the time. Because you're busy making sure that nothing lands on your grape juice so you can drink it. But you could give a rip about the person next to you or the people that actually crush those grapes for you. I mean, what if God looked and what he saw was people that really loved God and really loved people? Now, look, that doesn't mean that we just run around and give people coats. We do it in Jesus' name so people know that everything we do is because we want people to come to know him. But if that's what we were known for, could you imagine what God would do as he begins to plant this church? Could you imagine? People would like to go, I don't know who that group is, but they're weird, but I like it, and I want to be a part of that. They're full of extortion and self-indulgence. He calls them blind Pharisees. And then he says, he uses these two terms. He uses that of a dish, and then he uses it, uh, a cup and a dish, and then he uses it about a tomb. Now, the dish, let's be honest, no matter how Clean or dirty the cup is, the most important part's the inside. Let's be honest. I mean, you've probably, I, I, you know, it seems to be a fairly common thing here, but uh, you know, you've probably all gotten to a place where someone's tried to serve you something and you've kind of looked and you realized somebody actually left you a little gift on their cup, you know, that clearly you weren't the first person to ever touch that cup. I mean, I, it's amazing to me how many times I'll get someone someone's cup. That and the only reason I say this, it's got lipstick on it. and I don't wear lipstick. You know, they kind of look and like, mmm, that's a lovely shade of rouge, you know, or whatever. And it's like, uh, but it's one thing to be honest, where you kind of see it and it's a little something's kind of on the outside of the cup. But if the moment it makes it to the inside of the cup, you there's no way you're using it. Because you realize what you guys are doing. You're so busy kind of playing the outside and trying to make the outside look so clean. But it's really not the part that matters first. It's the part that's inside that really matters. Because when the inside part's clean, the rest of it seems to fall suit. And then he uses the term of a whitewashed tomb. And on a whitewashed tomb, understand, to step on a tomb made you unfit for worship. We use the word defiled. And the idea is is that you wouldn't just want to be walking somewhere, and then, oops, I just stepped on someone's grave. Now you couldn't make it to temple. So what they would do is they would paint it Bright white, we call it whitewashing. And by doing that, what would happen is it was clear marking, hey, don't step on that, that's Grandpa you know, tomb, and if you step on that, we can't go to church. That was the idea. He goes, boy, so, you try to make that. But now it becomes a competition of who's got the whitest. You know, It's like teeth in Hollywood. You know, It's like, who's got the whitest? It's like if you actually, if you know, when you really smile, if somebody doesn't go blind, you probably need another operation. There's the idea. So, so they're painting these things, and they're really washing them white so that you can look and go, wow, check out how bright that thing is. I think it actually at night this thing is going to glow. And, and, and you go in there, and he goes, buddy, it's like you really work so hard on the outside. But the problem is, is it's still full of dead man's bones inside. And he goes, no matter how much you whitewash it, it's still a tomb. You can paint it psychedelic. You can have a laser shooting out of it. Do you know what it is then? It's a laser shooting out tomb. It's a psychedelic tomb, but whatever you do with it, it's still a tomb. Because the problem isn't what you did with the outside. It's that it's got dead man's bones. The good news is, is that every Jew had read at one point or another, Ezekiel 37, where we know that God could take a dead man's bones and bring them to life. And my God is the God of life. And as we bring this to close for today, please hear me on this. God wants to do so much more with you than clean up your act. He wants to do so much more than do a remodel on you. And so what happens is we kind of look and we, and we see this thing and we're like, God, there's some really horrible areas of my life. Feel free to tear those down and redo those areas. But for the most part, the house is pretty good. And God's like, no, it's a, it's a teardown. And they are like, I don't know if it's a teardown. There's some pretty cool areas. And God goes, you don't realize the plans I have are infinitely cooler than anything you could come up with. So in the end of it all, you have kind of a cool surf shack lean-to, and God's got a cathedral to build on that property. But for that to happen, the only foundation strong enough to hold that up is Jesus Christ. And this is why Jesus can't be an addition to the room. He's just not a cool wall hanging to put up next to some place that you have greed and avarice. He's like, look at, I need to be the foundation for your life. Because if I'm not the foundation for your life, what you're going to be left with is something that when the rain, and the, as the rain comes and the wind blows and the floods rise, it's just not going to stand. And no matter how pretty you make it, it's just not going to make it. So Jesus looks and he says, listen, people should avoid you. You've painted yourself so pretty, people want to come and look, but you're dead man's bones and when people are near you, they get defiled. And what's really sad, I remind you, is these were the religious leaders. This wasn't just a group of people that were like calling themselves anti-God people or atheists or, or whatever the term you might want to use. They weren't like spiritual anarchists. These were the people that other people were seeking to emulate and say, if I could be like this, then I would really make God happy. God comes in the flesh and says, no, 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 don't be like that. It's not going to make me happy at all. Because I came to be with you, and here's the crazy part: first of all, they don't want to be with me, and then second, they want to interfere with anyone else that wants to be with me. They're the opposite of what I want you to be. Oh, yeah, look at—they carry their big Bibles. They have 15 apps of their Bible, you know, 15 Bible apps on their phone, and they'll gladly show them to you. They've got every Christian film in their house, but they've never really met the guy that it's all about. So Jesus looks and he says, "Look at." You've built all these tombs and these monuments and you've condemned all of their actions, but you do them the same. And you know, some of us, we're really skeptical of that. You see some terrorist action and some, you know, group stands up and says, oh, we condemn this action, but then they do nothing to actually go after people that are, that are continuing to propagate that kind of activity. And you go, I just doubt the sincerity of that. And he looks and he goes, well, that's what you guys are like you built monuments against people who really stood up against me that you knew were enemies, who declared war on me. They clearly lost. I'm still here, God speaking. And he goes, but you guys are doing the same thing. Don't you think that's strange? That you could openly condemn their actions? They want God dead, but look at you. You guys don't even realize it's Tuesday. By Thursday, you guys are going to have me arrested. By Friday, you're going to have me murdered. And you guys really think that somehow you're so much different than they are? Do you think God's happy with that? He I want to warn you. All unrighteous blood winds up at this one point, and that's the cross. And here's the point of this as we bring this. Because this all winds up at the cross, one way or the other, where Jesus took your sin, and he took my sin, and he nailed it there. And then he buried it in the tomb. And when Jesus rose, your sins were done. Now the question isn't whether he's done the work. The question is, what are you going to do with it? Jesus didn't just die for your sins. He died for the sins of these same people here. But notice what he says in these last verses. Like Jerusalem. Do you know how long I've just wanted to be with you guys? But not just be with you, but to pull you into a place where you're safe and loved and warm. Warm means a lot right now, doesn't it? They actually said they turned on the heat in a big way. I don't know what a little way is. He goes, but look, you know, the truth is, you just, you weren't willing. He goes, you know, the next time you see me, remember when you said that blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord? You'll get it right the second time because I'm going to come and I'm going to take down everything. He goes, but first I want to take care of the biggest issue, your sin. Now let me ask you, are you willing? Are you really willing to let the Lord take you under his wing? draw you to a place of deep and beautiful intimacy where you can actually feel his heartbeat. But for that to be, he's going to have to be Lord. And as we go to prayer, I'd like to invite you today to say yes to this Jesus. To say yes to his gift at the cross and his resurrection. The, The gift at the cross says he paid your bill. The resurrection says he deserves to be your Lord. But you realize if you let Jesus be your Lord, you know what He's going to do, right? He's going to tear down. He's going to rebuild. He's going to make your life a sanctuary. And then He's going to use you to draw other people to Him. He's going to make you look like Him so that other people can see how amazing it would be to be with Him. Are you ready for that? Well, you don't have to be ready. The question is, are you willing? He's the one who does all the work. So look at you and your sin stand before God. Jesus paid the price. It's a one-step thing. Accept Jesus' gift and let Him be Lord. And if that's the case, then we're going to have time of communion, and that'll be the end of the service. Today, as we go before the table of the Lord, please understand. This is the same thing Jesus did with his disciples two days from the point we're reading on that Thursday right before his arrest. Pesach, Passover. But we read that when we do this, we testify of his death till he comes. I can't do this and not testify of his death. But it tells us also to not eat or drink in an unworthy fashion. What would that be? It would be simple. It's to say, Jesus, I know you died for me, but I'm going to live for myself anyways. It's to take his offer without taking his offer. So as we pray, let's let the Lord get our hearts right. And then we as Christians, as people who have accepted that gift of Jesus Christ, whether that be right now, whether that be a long time ago, we'll be able to enjoy these things together. Will you pray with me, please? God in heaven, I want to thank you for this beautiful text. I want to thank you, Lord, for the warnings for people that get in the way between me and you. You don't want any of it. And whether that be people who call sin not sin so that I can embrace something that would just build a wall between us, or whether it be those who just stick obstacle after obstacle in between you and me, like those who sold doves. When the poor couldn't even come without a sacrifice and they were to be granted doves just so that they could offer sacrifice. But, you were, but they, were, they were turning people away at the door who wanted to be with you. And I can imagine nothing gets you angrier than that. And think of those who would just refuse you and that would grieve your heart. But for those who want to just get in between you and others, all well, that makes you angry. I don't want to be that person. I want to be the person that draws others. I want to be the person that experiences that harp time with you so beautiful and profoundly that I just can't help but tell others how good you are. So please, here in this chilly room, in this icebox of a church today, please, today, speak to us. And if today you want to accept that gift of Jesus Christ, it's a prayer away. Or maybe... You just realize you want to renew your vows, I just ask you to pray this prayer with me right now. God in heaven, I'm a sinner. And you're made clear in Isaiah fifty nine that my iniquities separate me from you. But Father in heaven, I believe you so loved me that you sent your only begotten Son, Jesus the Christ, to die on the cross and resurrect so that all of my iniquities could be paid in full just like you declared Jesus at the at the cross and just like scripture promised you were buried Jesus and then on the third day you rose again now to be declared the lord of my life the architect of my reinvention so i say yes if this is what you really want to do is pay my bill make me yours, draw me and pull me under your wing. When I say yes, have me. I belong to you. In Jesus' name. And if you agree with that prayer, I ask you to say with me, Amen. Oh God, thank you. You've heard our prayers. And as we take time now to enjoy, Lord, your communion, May we truly commune with you. Speak to our hearts of any area that you just want to make clear or even warn us, this is what's going to happen. Oh Lord, please, in Jesus' name, amen.